Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy and I am here in Los Angeles, California. I hope you're doing all right out there, wherever you happen to be. Thank you for listening. I have a great episode for you today. My guest is Madeline Lucas, author of the debut novel, Thirst for Salt. I feel like if you're going to write a novel about love, how could you not talk about family, which is, for better or worse, you know, our first experience of what love is or or can be. And I was thinking a lot about the ways that we're influenced by the relationship we see between our parents and also the stories that they tell about love and the way they kind of shape the choices that we make in our own lives. Okay, that was Madeline Lucas, author of the novel Thirst for Salt. It's available now in the United States from Tin House and in the UK from One World Publications. The novel is due out in Australia from Alan and Unwin, if I am pronouncing that correctly, in early April. Thirst for Salt is an excellent book. This is a superb debut. It is about a love affair between a 24-year-old woman and a 42-year-old man. It takes place in a fictional coastal town in Australia called Sailor's Beach, not far from Sydney. And the novel is narrated by the young woman who goes unnamed. And she is telling the story retrospectively, many years removed from the end of her relationship with this man whose name is Jude. Madeline Lucas is an absolutely wonderful lyrical writer who is excellent at depicting atmosphere and physicality and uh, 
great at writing about the emotional and psychological subtleties of human relationships, desire, and the lasting grief that we tend to experience whenever we lose an important relationship. This is also very much a coming-of-age story about a young woman in search of stability and identity and direction, and it's about the, the path that she takes as she tries to set her own course. I just love this book, and I loved talking with Madeline Lucas. That conversation is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of the novel Homecoming by New York Times bestselling author Kate Morton. This is an epic story that begins with a shocking crime. Homecoming asks us what we would do for those we love and how we protect the lies we tell. It explores the power of motherhood, the corrosive effects of tightly held secrets, and the healing nature of truth. Above all, it is a beguiling and immensely satisfying novel from one of the finest writers working today. That's Homecoming, the new novel by Kate Morton, on sale April 4th, 2023, available from Mariner Books. So the Other People podcast is offered freely the entire catalog of this podcast, more than 800 episodes and counting. All of it is made available to listeners free of charge. There are no paywalls by design. We all hate paywalls. We're sick of paywalls. There are no paywalls. So I want this content to be easily and freely accessible, but at the same time, I am counting on regular listeners, people who love this show, people who feel like they get something from it, people who love literary culture and would like to see it continue. I'm counting on those kinds of people to support this show. And I have tried to make supporting this show as easy as possible, as painless as possible. You can support the Other People podcast for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. It's a sliding scale. So $1 a month, three, five, 10, 20, whatever you can swing. And as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise. So I hope you will consider supporting this show so that you can perpetuate this show into the future. Again, it is patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to get other people merchandise, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com, t-shirts, sweatshirts, and whatnot. There is a weekly newsletter that I do. It's an email newsletter. It goes out once a week. It's free. If you want to sign up for that, you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. What is this newsletter, you might ask? The newsletter is essentially a list of things that I've been reading and finding interesting. It's very straightforward. It's once a week. I try to make it useful and entertaining, you know, and interesting. So that's about it. It's once a week. If you want the newsletter, go sign up. The Other People podcast is on YouTube. Did you know that? You can watch this show. You can watch my conversation with Madeline Lucas over on the Other People YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and when you get there, hit the subscribe button. It's free. The Other People podcast is also on social media. You can watch video clips of my conversations on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at Other PPL. 
If you have a moment and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it is, give the show a rating. If it's possible to write a quick review, write a quick review. It really does help. It helps new listeners find the show in the uh, algorithm. You know what I mean. If you have feedback for me, the email address for this show is letters at otherppl.com. You can tell me a story or offer your thoughts, letters at otherppl.com. I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Did you know that? It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. In May, it will be a year since its publication. It's my second novel. It's my third book. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. I narrate the audiobook, so if you want to listen to me read it to you, that is also an option. Okay, so before we begin, I do want to bring something up, and I've been meaning, or I've been debating with myself over whether or not I should talk about this on the show, but I think it's semi-relevant to books and literature and writing, and I, I think it's probably something that will be familiar to many of you, and it has to do with social media. In particular with TikTok and with Instagram, the algorithm will deliver you content, and this is troubling and strange, and you don't know quite why they're feeding you certain things, or maybe you do, and I don't know. The algorithm is something that we all deal with. And what I want to talk about is the experience of having a video delivered to you, some sort of content, and then you begin flipping, like scrolling with your, you know, flipping with your thumb, basically, on your phone. And the algorithm will continue to, to deliver you content that is, I think, related to whatever it began with. And as you do this, you can create what I would refer to as like algorithm poetry. <laughs> it's very hypnotic and very odd and kind of funny too. And what I, I want to share this with you, A, because I think it's, it's weird and interesting and maybe a little bit annoying, but also because I'm wondering if anybody else out there does this, like tries to make little poems with content fed by the algorithm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Let me demonstrate so you can get an idea of what I mean. All right. So I'm going to open up uh, my phone here and I'm just going to start flipping randomly. This is an algorithm poem created in this moment spontaneously with technology. The cost of sanity. Most people don't even know themselves. Why does it matter what they think of you? Feeling fucking zooted. Dance is the answer. Hey, do you have tight hips? Where's my daughter? We want to be free. We want to be free to, to do what we want to do. We're born alone. We die alone. Excessive overthinking is usually a trauma response to a childhood where you were criticized too much. Here are the top three things I would do to get started in investing. There are no problems in life. You think that God gets stoned once in a while? Where is my daughter? Stress is a sign that you've lost the present moment. So death created time. No one wants to tell us why discipline is so important. Hey y'all, every now and then I go through a crisis of whether or not I feel like an adult. 
What is your definition of happiness? Your soul is not inside your body. Enormous megalithic structures. Okay, so it's interesting. I think, <laughs> or maybe it's not interesting, but I think what fascinates me about it is that the execution of an algorithm poem, if we're going to call it this, if we're going to stick with this name, is that it is dependent upon when you decide to like flip, when you decide to scroll and move on to the next bit of content. But I do this for embarrassingly long stretches of time. And I don't think it's good for you. I think what I'm advocating is actually probably bad for your brain. But I do think there's something interesting about these weird like sound collages and video, I guess, if you're sitting there staring at it. But it's really interesting for me to sort of listen to the connections in language or the juxtapositions, whatever it is. Anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. I haven't shared with you guys in the monologue in a while. My guest, once again, is Madeline Lucas, author of the debut novel, Thirst for Salt. Madeline is originally from Australia. She is the daughter of a visual artist and a rock musician, as you will hear us talk about. And she was raised in Melbourne and Sydney. She now lives in New York, where she is a senior editor for Noon, the esteemed literary journal, and she teaches in the undergraduate and graduate writing programs at Columbia, where she received her MFA. Madeline Lucas has published essays and interviews in a variety of places, including the Paris Review Daily, The Believer, Lit Hub, and Catapult. And her fiction has been awarded the Elizabeth Jolly Prize and the Overland Victoria University Emerging Writers Prize. It is so nice to have the opportunity to talk with a writer who is at this point, who is making such a remarkable debut. So let's get to it. This is my conversation with Madeline Lucas. And her debut novel, One More Time, is called Thirst for Salt. I was the narrator's age when she meets Jude. I was 24 and I had this idea about a young woman, her older boyfriend and their dog. And it was still set in this kind of isolated Australian coastal landscape. I was thinking a lot about the isolated beach towns that I visited when I was a child in Victoria and New South Wales. And so I wrote that story and at the time I was satisfied with it and I, you know, I thought I'd said what I had to say. But after I moved to New York to do my MFA, I just kept getting drawn back to these characters and this landscape and they kind of just stayed with me. And so it was a slow process of kind of chipping away at these stories for a few years, thinking at first I would maybe write a linked collection, which is a form I love and, and deeply admire. But yeah, it took me a long time to kind of understand that it really was one larger narrative that I was thinking about, the arc of this relationship. And turning it into a novel, I think, also allowed me to kind of bring in more of the narrator's own backstory and the kind of influence of her upbringing as the daughter of two drifters, this kind of loving but impulsive mother and an itinerant absent father. So do you have any sense of why, you know, these characters, the unnamed narrator, female narrator of the novel, and then her older boyfriend, Jude, mm -hmm. and their dog, King? Mm-hmm. 
why did they stay with you? I mean, again, the genesis for this is when you're 24. Mm -hmm. But I'm always, it's fascinating to me because this happens to, I think, all writers. Like certain things just get stuck in your head. And the only way to exercise them (laughs) is Mm -hmm. to spend a decade or whatever writing a book about it. So do you have a sense of why these characters in this situation were so sticky? It's a great question. And I don't know if I have a good answer for it because I think, you know, who really knows why we get fixated on the things that we do? I think that part of me just wanted to understand these characters more deeply. I think that, you know, the novel is not autobiographical in a classic sense, but a lot of the characters are kind of, as characters often are, amalgamations of people in my life. And I think that's something that always compels me is just trying to figure out why people are the way they are. Why do they make the choices that they make? That's a big part of what brings me to writing. And I think that I just hadn't kind of fully understood them or unraveled their story yet. And so I kept wanting to go back and and say a little bit more, uncover a little bit more. And I think also what was really interesting about the process of writing this novel is that, you know, I aged with the character in a way. I started writing about this experience when I was 24, um, the same age she is, that kind of formative summer. And in a way, I think I had to get older to allow myself to be able to tell the story retrospectively. I think I just needed more perspective. And maybe that was part of it, part of the reason I kept being drawn back, that as I got older, I had a different perspective on the relationship and on the situations than I did when I first wrote that story. How many drafts did you go through? Do you have a sense? It's a complicated question because I was working on it in this kind of piecemeal way of these stories, which I would revise, you know, maybe three or four times a story. And then at a certain point when I realized that that form wasn't really working for me, I basically had to unravel the whole thing. And it kind of felt like I had had these like little parcels all neatly wrapped up and I was trying to make these like individual perfect polished objects. And when I decided to turn it into a novel in a way, it felt like I was like kind of snipping all the ribbons and just making this big mess, which I did physically spread out on the floor at a certain point. And then... With the novel, I think it was, gosh, maybe three or four passes. But the way that I write is kind of strange in that I revise as I go along. I'm not the kind of writer that kind of, you know, bashes out a rough first draft and then goes back and polishes. I really like to edit as I go. Me too. too. (laughs) And I feel I'm glad I'm happy to hear you say that because I sometimes feel a little bit crazy for doing it that way. But that's exactly how I work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's an unpopular opinion, I feel. Like the conventional advice is to just get down a rough draft and go back and fix it up later. But that fills me with anxiety and and dread. I feel like what it does, like it's like giving yourself permission to write a shitty draft just means you're going to write a shitty draft. Like I've got, and I, I don't know, just temperamentally, I've got to get it as right as I can get it every time. It's just how I do it. I've kind of resign myself to this. I don't think I'm capable of doing the fast, shitty draft and getting anything of value out of it. Me neither. And it it doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make me feel productive. It's just not the way I enjoy writing. I like to be able to kind of take my time and I don't know. I feel like I'm not really like this in a lot of other parts of my life, but I just don't like to leave a mess behind me. (laughs) But it might might be because like you said, you spent a decade on this book. Mm Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar to me. I spent a decade mm-hmm. on my last book. So maybe that makes us slower. Maybe that's the the, the trade-off is that you, you try to get things as close to as 
perfect as you can the first time around, but that slows you down or something. I don't know. Yeah. And for me, I think, you know, so much happens on a sentence level and on a language level. And if I don't get those sentences right, then how will my transitions be right? You know what I mean? I, I kind of, I think of it as all being part of the same project. So I don't really know how something's going to work unless I, yeah, unless I get the sentence right to begin with, because that's going to affect the word choices I continue to make when I go through. I, I just want to say along these lines, there's something very distinctly lyrical and musical about your writing. It's beautiful. And it doesn't surprise me to learn that you have a musical background. You have a musical parent. Your father is a, what, a punk rock musician. That's right. All of this makes a sense to me. And I, I learned this after I had read the novel and I was like, ah, and I have to ask, and this might be totally off base, but you're, this book reminded me in its music of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Are you a Fitzgerald fan? Wow, that's so funny. That's definitely a question I haven't been asked at all. But I love that because I was obsessed with F. Scott Fitzgerald when I first started writing. Like, you know, The Great Gatsby, I don't know, it feels maybe like a little corny or cliche to say so, but I read it in high school and I think it really did change my life and made me want to write. I, I think it's a perfect novel. Again, that might be another unpopular opinion. But his writing is is so lyrical and I love that you see that because I don't think anyone's kind of picked up on that influence. And it's not one that I think of so much anymore, but it was very much a formative part of my early writing years. As it is for most. I mean, you read that book in high school, right? Or you, or especially early career, you're like, how do I do this? Who did this well? And, you know, I, I've looked to that book in that way. And there is a real music to his writing, but also this feeling of him having impeccable control. And I think mm. the same is true in Thirst for Salt. Like, it's not just that you're like, you're getting carried away and sort of like waxing rhapsodic about love and romance and all this stuff. It always feels like each line is well-tuned. And I very much relate to this sense of writing slowly, line by line, and having to have the thing sound right mm -hmm. in order to even move on or to know where to move on. Mm -hmm. I, I relate to that so much. Like it has to click into place. It's not that it won't change later, but at least in this for, you know, whatever pass you're on, it's like, it has to sound right. And you have to like what you end with in a certain section or at a certain chapter ending and what you begin with in the next, it's so, it has to be just right. <laughs> Is that what, you know, I don't know that, that feels very relatable to me. Yeah. That's how I feel because I feel like you know, each choice you make is going to affect the later choices you make in the text. And I really do want the walk to sound good to my ear. I feel like that is one of the few reliable ways to know whether or not something is working. I read everything out loud when I'm drafting. I'll go back and, and read a scene through from the start to make sure that the rhythm is there, the cadence is there. I think there were early drafts of this book that maybe got a little too carried away with that. And part of the revision process was kind of learning when to really lean into the lyrical aspects of the novel and kind of indulge those sensibilities and when to pull back. Because I think that there can be a lot of power and beauty to a simple sentence too. So when do you lean in? Did you, I mean, is there, a, are there certain circumstances where you found it was consistently needed and others where you felt like it was better to dial back? 
I think a lot of it was intuitive, kind of just reading it out loud and feeling like, you know, you want those those lyrical moments, those descriptive moments to land with the reader. And, and I think that sometimes a kind of exhaustion can set in if there's kind of, you know, too much sensory detail, for example, and it becomes overwhelming. Sometimes that can be great if it's intentional, but if it's not intentional, I feel like, yeah, you don't want to risk it sort of washing over the reader at a certain point. So I don't know. I think part of it was this negotiation that I was trying to make in the novel between writing about a desire that could feel like visceral and really in the moment and have that kind of electric charge. And then also thinking about desire as a more ambient longing for the life not lived. And so I think the way I was kind of trying to balance that was to have these moments where we would kind of really snap into a heightened visceral moment and then have these other sort of distanced, maybe like reflections on the narrator's part that would kind of pull back and give us the perspective, if that makes sense. Sure, sure, yeah. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a love story. I think that's the way that you have probably been describing it as like in a shorthand way, right? This is a story about a love affair. And something that I thought from a writerly perspective as I was reading it, like I'm always interested in the vessel for a work of fiction. That's what I call it anyway. It's mm -hmm. like, what's the shape of the story? What's the container? And I was like, oh yeah, like a relationship. What a lovely vessel, especially one that, <laughs> I mean, all relationships have a beginning and an end, uh, mm -hmm. you know, eventually, but especially for like a May, December romance or whatever, that had this kind of short, but really like passionate and charged aspect to it. That's a great story to tell. There's a distinct beginning, middle, and you know, some kind of middle and end. And there's also, and I think this is something that you have been saying as you've been talking about the book and that I'd like us to discuss an existential aspect to all great love stories. Mm -hmm. It's a great opportunity to explore that stuff, right? 
Yeah, I think so. I, you know, when I say it's a love story, I think in a way I'm being a little cheeky because I think that a lot of people have assumptions about what love stories are or about their limitations. I think particularly when they're written by women, they tend not to be broad strokes here, but they're often not seen as, you know, having as much literary value as say like The Great Gatsby, which is also a love story. Of course, I don't think that's true. And I think that the best love stories are existential in nature. And they are, as you say, a vessel for thinking about these larger ideas about the human condition. Like, what does it mean to love and to try and love someone? What does it mean to lose someone? You know, these questions of grief and memory are some of our really, I think, fundamental human struggles that are such a big part of our life. And I do think that the love story is a really great way at kind of getting at some of those questions. Yeah, I think it's interesting the way that we never really get over anything. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I mean, even when it's a relationship that should have ended, that wasn't working out, it wasn't meant to be, you know. Mm -hmm. I think people always hold on. I mean, if you've spent time in a relationship with anybody, there's always some place in you for that person and those memories and never fully exits. Though you can go a long time without thinking about it. I mean, you know, it's not like you're always carrying it around. But that's a fascination to me. And I think with this one, the intensity of it for the narrator, and I think also the time in her life, you know, 24, that's young. You're just sort of, I mean, I was just barely figuring out anything at 24. So I think that is part of it. And then I think too, you know, this issue of grief we grieve what we've lost. We grieve maybe like the unlived life that we might've had. But I think in, in another sense, we're just kind of grieving ourselves. I, you mm-hmm. know, p- people are pretty self-centered. <laughs> so I think you look back on these relationships and they're kind of markers of time and you go through one and lose it. And it's sort of like, ah, oh, well, that was my youth or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's kind of a way of sort of measuring the span of our own lives. No, absolutely. And I think that that is absolutely part of grieving a lover or a relationship is you sort of lose this record of who you are at a particular moment in time. Like there's this sense that they have witnessed you at a certain point in this really intimate way. And in in some ways it feels like you can't access that person anymore without your witness. And I think this can happen too with friendships if you have really intense childhood friendships, for example, and then you're no longer in touch with that person, a similar thing can happen. I don't know that it's exclusive to romantic love, but I think it's in romantic love that we maybe see that more clearly or the most clearly. Yeah. So I was thinking about that idea too. And also I think with romantic love, so much of the grief when it comes to an end is all the things that you didn't get to do with that person, all those un realized possibilities, that potential unlived life. And I think that in this book, to some degree, that's what haunts the narrator more than the actual loss of the relationship itself. It's kind of this grief for everything that it could have been. Yeah. I feel like romantic love, professional life. I mean, I think we all do this, right? We all sort of fixate or spend time ruminating on all the things we did and didn't do or the choices that we made or didn't make. And, 
am I living the right life? <laughs> yeah. That's just part of the human experience. Everybody does that, I feel like. I mean, hopefully not to excess, but it seems to be part of how it goes. I think so. And that was definitely something I was thinking about with this book. Like, I feel like the choices that we don't make are just as formative and as important as the ones that we do. And they kind of shape us as well. So we have a, in this love affair, an older man, he's 42, mm-hmm. and his name is Jude. And he's kind of closed off. He's not a very emotive guy. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of a he's sort of a mystery to the unnamed female narrator. I think he's also in some sense, uh, some senses a mystery to the reader. And we're mm-hmm. kind of, that's part of the fascination of the novel is like, who is this guy and what makes him tick? And I think the narrator is trying to sort that out as well. And then there is a dog named King who I love. I think everybody loves King, right? That's like, I don't know, such a, you, you draw him really well. Like dog characters sometimes appear in books. They need to appear more, but I loved King. And I think that one of the things that you've been talking about as you've talked about this book, I'm sure, is this age gap. There's an 18-year mm-hmm. age difference between the narrator and Jude. And yet there's nothing predatory mm-hmm. about the relationship. There may be you know, power imbalance in terms of his age and experience, mm-hmm. but it's not something that you're depict it's not something that rises to the level of uh, predatory or abusive or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like this is a love affair on relatively stable ground, right? They're both mm-hmm. into it. <laughs> yeah, that was really important to me. And you know, something I'm glad to have the opportunity to say is that when this book went out on submission, there were some editors who expressed disappointment that it wasn't a, quote, Me Too novel. And I found that really problematic because it seemed like there was this desire to co-opt what I felt was like a really important political moment as a way to sell books and make them more marketable. But I also had an issue with this idea that there was no place for a story about a woman in a relationship with an older man that wasn't predatory or where she wasn't framed as a victim. And so even though there is a power imbalance between them, I really wanted to show that she also has agency and that there's a sense to a certain degree of wanting to be equals or feeling like equals when they're in the middle of that relationship, even if other people wouldn't see it from the outside. I think that when it's at its best, the two people in the relationship do feel like equals. And power in a relationship is fluid. Exactly. In any intimate relationship. However, you know, if it if it runs a few months even, <laughs> you know, it's going to have, it's not going to be static. I mean, I think his age advantage and just at the level of experience, sure, that's static. But there's also elements of this book where his age, like his old uh, older age becomes a factor because you know, he doesn't have the same amount of energy or his looks might be mm-hmm. fading a little bit. Like that stuff can tip things too. Definitely. And I, I think there's also like the advantage of youth and a kind of open-mindedness that we tend to associate with that. I feel like the narrator in a lot of ways is much more brave than him in their relationship because maybe she hasn't had as much experience or history. So she kind of gives herself to those feelings with a willingness and an openness that I think 
can sometimes fade in people as they get older. And I think that's part of his stoicism too. He's like a little bit more risk adverse in some ways to really kind of get in deep with someone, whereas she maybe doesn't have that kind of awareness yet. And that could look like naivety, but I think it's also a kind of power or definitely an advantage of some kind. Well, it's a kind of courage. It's a, there's courage in that. Yes. You know, and there's, I think, a kind of beauty. I love that, like that youthful openness or any openness in people to give it a try. Yeah. You know, to not be shut down and closed off and, you know, maybe uh, debilitated by our wounds, you know, that we inevitably accrue as we go through life. That's a great way of putting it. And yeah, I think, you know, I was thinking about these ideas a lot. And as you said, in any intimate relationship dynamic, the power is not going to be static. There's always going to be moments when one person feels more or less in control or like the more or less loved one. And so I guess I was thinking, yeah, if I was going to write about a relationship that felt true to any experience of intimacy that I had had, it would have to be a shifting dynamic. The power couldn't always just go in, in one direction. And something I did really kind of want to grapple with is thinking about this kind of cliche of the May-December romance just with a little bit more nuance than I've often seen it portrayed. Yeah, it feels very lived in and more true to life than maybe the May-December romances that you might see in movies or something. Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes those can be oversimplified. And one of the aspects of your novel that I think helps to deliver this more nuanced effect is the mystery around Jude. I mean, we're seeing this relationship through the narrator, through the woman's eyes. Mm -hmm. And so the reader experiences the mystery of Jude in the way that the narrator does. Mm -hmm. And it just brings to light kind of curious fact about intimate relationships of even intimate relationships of great length. You could be married to somebody mm -hmm. for 50 years and that person will still retain a certain air of mystery. This is maybe something that when I was younger, I didn't fully realize, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like even if you get married, like my wife is still mysterious to me on a certain level. You can never fully know another person, no matter how much time you spend with them in close quarters. No, I totally agree. And I think that is such a beautiful thing as well. I think that there's always a part of our lovers that are unknowable to us, no matter how many years we spend with them. You know, I've been married for seven years now. My husband and I actually met when we were both young. So we've known each other for almost 15 years. And yeah, he's still a mystery to me. I don't know what he's thinking most of the time, <laughs> right. but I feel like you wouldn't want to know either because I think that mystery is so important between two people and it's a big part of the chemistry as well. So I want to talk about grief uh, because it's a big part of this book, like the loss of love in the same way that we maybe lose a person to death. Like when you lose a romantic partner, I know there are these stories of people being like best friends with their ex or whatever, <laughs> but usually it's not the case. Usually it's sort of like a break and you move on mm -hmm. in different directions and you kind of never see that person again. So in a sense, it's like a death. And mm -hmm. so I feel like there's an element of that to the telling, the, the narrator's telling. Mm -hmm. I also feel, and I think maybe I feel this after 
doing a little bit of homework, but it made the book kind of click into sharper focus for me that there's like a geographical grief mm -hmm. at the heart of this book. And I want us to talk about this because this is interesting to me. You wrote this book, you, you live in New York, right? That's right. But you're an Australian born and raised. And so mm -hmm. I don't think you could be much farther from the Blue Mountains of Australia or the coast of New South <laughs> Wales than to be in New York. That's, I mean, that's a good distance. And yet I read that you said, you know, I think that part of this book is my longing for home, my longing to inhabit these places. The entire book unfolds in Australia and in particular in this fictional coastal town of Sailor's Beach. And I was like, oh, right. Like she really misses this place. And I think that's what makes it so vivid and I think that's what gives it some of that griefy energy, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? I totally agree. Like, I do really see this novel as being charged by my own homesickness, living away from Australia for the first time. And, you know, it's just one of those things about, I don't know, the human brain or psychology. I had no interest in writing about Australia when I lived there. You know, it wasn't interesting to me because it was right there. It was in front of me. It was all that I knew. So I don't think I really understood how different or specific a place it was until I was so far removed from it. And, you know, I had these realizations like, where are the bird calls in the morning? Or I don't see the same plants that I always used to see. And I think, you know, part of this is, is everyone, where you grow up, you kind of think that's just the way that the world is until you really kind of get out of that space and, and see something new and, and start to realize that, yeah, each place is specific in its own way. And there were parts of writing this novel where I worried that that distance would be unproductive. Um, you know, I really love nonfiction, essayistic writing, autofiction, you know, fiction that takes a lot from nonfiction forms. And at a certain point, I worried that I wouldn't be able to write about the landscape or the place with accuracy from such a distance. But I think, as you said, in a way, it ended up being productive because I ended up kind of sharing an emotional experience with my narrator in that she is also longing for both a place and a time in her life as well as a person that's no longer accessible to her. So I don't know if that kind of energy of longing would have come through as clearly had I been writing this, you know, from back home in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to be in exile. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also a thing where I think that you maybe can't make it fully mythical without missing it and being at a serious distance. Or I think it helps mm -hmm. to make it mythical when you're just drawing on memory alone and you're feeling like a genuine grief and homesickness. Mm -hmm. That I felt that. Maybe like it's it's deep inside the text, but it's definitely there and it's part of what makes it powerful. I love that you said, you know, mythology or mythologizing, because I think that is such a function of love as well like whether it's love for a place or love for a person I think there is this desire to sort of make it live on by telling stories about it and that was something that I wanted the book to actively engage with as well that kind of narrative impulse to preserve something by yeah almost making a space in myth where it could live forever well yeah I mean you have to when you lose somebody however you lose them you're inevitably going to ruminate on it if it really means something to you and in order to process it and kind of continue forward in life you have to i think you have to get to a point where you sort of 
land on a story or a set of stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just seems to be part of the human condition. We have to, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that maybe these sorts of experiences are more generative in this way than others. Deep loss, of course it would be, mm-hmm. you know, but also loss of place. Mm-hmm. You start to tell yourself stories about a place. It's funny how you can be so over it when you're there and then you go away and you're like, God, I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What, what's wrong with us? Yeah. But also like, God, I'm, well, I'm so stupid. Like, why was I not like just overjoyed to be in this beautiful, pristine beach town in Australia? Like I was kind of mm-hmm. thinking that on your behalf. I was like, see, it's like you're living in this ideal climate. Now you're in New York and instead of bird calls, there's sirens. You know, I guess there's some yeah. charm to New York, but it's it's different. And Australia is so lovely. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, every place has its problems, but there's something about how remote it is that I think protects it in a certain way. And there's a rarity to how pristine and beautiful and unpopulated it is, especially as a Californian. I kind of feel like California Mm -hmm. is like what Australia would be like if Australia got overrun by real estate developers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I do feel like it's kind of, it's happening, but you're right, because it is so isolated, there's a limit to how much, you know, it's ever going to be sort of densely populated to the degree of somewhere like California. And I do really miss that sense of isolation. There's a negative side to that as well, though. I think particularly being a young artist in Australia, I found it difficult to really forge community and that's one of the things that I do really love about New York is you know it's a cliche again but there are just so many writers here and I kind of like not feeling so much like an anomaly so sometimes I feel like yeah like with any isolated place I think there's like a positive side and a negative side to that kind of feeling of maybe being out of step with the rest of the world that can be a beautiful thing, but part of me, especially when I was younger, I think felt a little limited by it. And it is funny, as you get older, your priorities change. And now I think like, you know, I could live in a house in the backyard near the beach. What am I doing? Well, maybe you will. Maybe you will eventually. At least, at least you have that yeah. option, you know? like No, it's a great kind option. Kind of build your network and your community in New York now. And then, you know, once you're established, you can move back to Australia and be sort of mysterious and you know, you can just be posting beautiful photos on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll probably just write about New York because <laughs> yeah, uh, right. that seems to be the way it goes. That seems to be the way it goes. <laughs> so it's a just to kind of review and to kind of bring listeners along. It's a love story. It's a grief story. And that grief has to do with the loss of a relationship, the loss of the unlived life, but also uh, like subtextually, the loss of place, I think for you as the author. It's also a family story, and mm. I think critically so. Like this is a subplot to the book. It's not the main event, but I don't think that this novel works as well as it does in the absence of the relationship between the narrator and her mother and her brother and her father. And I feel like there is a real, a, like a, uh, astute psychological understanding of this character in relationship to her family mm-hmm. that makes the primary story more powerful and makes it make more sense. So let's talk a little bit about the family story 
and how I think the, the, the main narrative that you're dealing in here, this relationship between Jude and the narrator is an opportunity to explore how uh, our parents teach us about what a loving relationship looks like, how there can be generational maybe evolution or progress or regression. I mean, I don't know, but <laughs> there, there, there does seem to be, I think, oftentimes a pattern through generations mm -hmm. in a particular family line to how relationships look. Am I barking up the right tree here? Like yeah, definitely. That was something that I was thinking about a lot. I mean, I feel like if you're going to write a novel about love, how could you not talk about family, which is for better or worse, you know, our first experience of what love is or, or can be. And I was thinking a lot about the ways that, you know, we're influenced by the relationship we see between our parents and also the stories that they tell about love and the way they kind of shape the choices that we make in our own lives. And the way I was trying to explore this was mainly through the character of the narrator and her mother. Because in a lot of ways, I do see this as a very sort of specific female coming of age story. And I feel like as a young woman, so much of the choices that you make at that point in your life are really influenced by the choices that your mother made, whether you're you know, actively choosing towards them or against them, or you're afraid of following the same patterns or accidentally replicating the same patterns. I feel like it's something that you can't really get away from. And I also just think, yeah, talking about love, I wanted the novel to hold other visions of love that weren't just purely romantic, especially because I think that, you know, our relationships crib so much from our experiences with earlier forms of intimacy, like the relationship we have with our parents or with our siblings. And I was really interested in the way that those, you know, those kinds of intimacies can collide or, yeah, influence one, each, one, and one another in a way. No, for sure. For sure. And, you know, I think that part of the reason why this book works so well and delivers like a satisfying emotional experience is that we're getting to see this narrator navigate her life and sort of prove to herself and prove to us as a reader that your like the generational patterns to which you are heir are not necessarily your destiny. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to spoil anything, but I just feel like that's part of what you're exploring. And that's an important point to make. And it's something that I think a lot of us wrestle with, you know, mm -hmm. we kind of come into life and are impacted by the situation that we're born into and the people with whom we're intimate at a family level. But ultimately this character has agency, which we've discussed, mm -hmm. like I think was important to you and is definitely important to this story. And we do ultimately get to make our own choices and make our own way. Yeah, I think that's right. And to me, there's the fear, though, that the patterns that we see will become our destiny. And I think that was something that I was very much wrestling with myself, like on a personal level while I was writing this book. You know, like my narrator, my parents divorced when I was very young. We kind of moved around a lot when I was growing up. And when I really started working on this novel in earnest, I was at a point in my life where I was 
basically, you know, newly married and and trying to figure out how to have a shared domestic life with someone and what that was going to look like and how that could maybe look different to what I'd seen growing up, but wanting to take the best parts of that as well, the fear of replicating those patterns. So I think in a lot of ways, the novel is my way of, of wrestling with those things that I felt like I had to make peace with by myself. And in a way, I think it was learning for both my narrator and myself that like you have the ability to make different choices. You know, no pattern is, is set in stone. Listen, I will go to the mat arguing that writing a book is a great way to wrestle with something like that. <laughs> like, I really, I mean, and, and like I say great, not only because, I mean, the experience can be mixed, it can be difficult. So it's not like it's like some sort of uniformly joyful experience, but Mm-hmm. I, I think it's great because it's effective if you really do the work. Like I, I find anyway that it's not like it delivers an like a totally clean, perfect result, but there are much worse ways to grapple with something deep and meaningful in your life than to sit down for years and write a book about it. Yeah, really think about it. Absolutely. And yeah, and I just think too that writer, writerly people tend to be maybe more tuned in to their insides. Is that, is that King? Is that your dog? I'm, I'm sorry. That's a, a cameo from Pancho. Pancho, be quiet. That's okay. I have Twiggy. Twiggy <laughs> is right behind me. I don't know if you can see her. Let's see if we can move. See her back there? She's back there. Oh, yeah. Her. The unofficial the unofficial mascot that's of right. other people. She's, that's, she where she, that's where she sits during these conversations. Sometimes she barks, but I don't know. I just think it's a... I mean, and I guess maybe I would turn it around and pose the question to you, like having done all this work and written this book, do you feel like it did deliver to you uh, a deeper understanding and a good result? Yes, I do. Actually, I think that it allowed me space to kind of settle those questions down and hopefully set them aside for a little while. I mean, I think that in a way, whatever I write is always going to be about love and about family. I think that those are just the defining experiences of my life. And I'll always probably be drawn back to them. I'm sorry, there's people outside and it's he's okay. being protected. He's doing his, he's doing his job. He's, he's doing, doing his, his job. That's right. This is a real proof that I do actually have a dog. <laughs> he, he exists. Um, he's not an Irish wolfhound. He's a small Labrador pit bull mix who's not usually this loud. Well, it's um, okay. But yes, I do feel like, you know, at the start of the novel, the narrator's mother says to her, you know, why are you carrying all this around with you? Which is a line that I kind of borrowed from Anne Carson's The Glass Essay, which has a similar exchange in it. And I always really loved it. Um, And so I think in a way, my novel is the place to put things down, at least for me. And when you say that line, like, why are you carrying all this around with you? What do you, like in the context of your own novel, what do you mean? Like just like the, this grief for this old relationship you mean or this yeah this kind of obsession with the past and all the things that could have been I think that in the context of the book it's more to do with that in the context of my own life I think it's these questions that I've had to wrestle with about family and about home and at least for a little while I feel like I have given them a place to live and I think that can be a really beautiful thing about writing a novel is kind of like putting a pin in a certain at a certain point in your life and being like that, that lives, those concerns live here now and they'll always live here. And now hopefully that allows space for other questions to come up or yeah, other lines of inquiry to develop. 
And like later on in your life, if you find yourself feeling confused about this stuff, you can just reread your own book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'd love to think it was a total cure all, but you know, whatever. I'm still in therapy like one day a week. And I do actually think of that as being a really uh, productive and generative process. Creatively. I feel like, yeah, I feel like uh, I've spoken to a lot of writers or artists who feel like, you know, if I go to therapy, will it take up all this space that I, you know, to ask these questions that I normally ask in my writing. But for me, I feel like it's actually been super generative um, because so much of therapy, I think, is trying to understand patterns of behavior and, and thought. And, and for me, that's what writing is as well. And I think, too, like if there are certain things like narratives or thought loops or emotional places where you feel stuck, that, that stuff can eat up a lot of energy, creative and otherwise. And so you go to therapy or you do something else, you know, exercise, whatever it is, and you kind of burn through that stuff. And it, it, instead of taking up space, it frees up space, right? That's right. And just another way to get a different perspective on, on things, I think. Well, yeah. We can be wrong, too. That's the thing, too. <laughs> it's interesting when you're, like, very certain in your narrative about something in your past for example and then with time maybe further insight or maybe additional information you realize that you were wrong or like i can find myself getting like i'll be convinced that like somebody's like mad at me (laughs) (laughs) or yeah that this is like i i'm you know i don't know what it is i'm always like worried like is everything is everything okay did i do everything all right have i hurt somebody's feelings and then it'll turn out that like they weren't thinking about whatever I was worried about at all. You know, it'll completely resolve itself and I will have been like worrying about it for like two straight weeks. <laughs> yeah, I know. I do I do exactly the same thing. And you know, like who knows, I feel like maybe I'll read this book in, in 10 or 20 years after having more experience and part of me will feel compelled to write some version of it again based on what I've learned in that time. But I do think of the novel as being a record of my growth, both as a human and as a writer during the period that I was working on it. And I think that is one of the things that's really special about a long form narrative, which I don't think I really understood because I, you know, obviously this is my first novel. And before that I'd previously written short fiction, which can stay with you and and live with you and um, take up psychic space for a long time too. But it's, it's not the kind of same record of a time in your life. I mean, it's kind of like what we were saying before about the relationship being a record of a time or a testament to a time. I feel like the novel is kind of like that as as well. It's another way of like um, what Joan Didion said about keeping in touch with the person that you used to be. You know, this is my thoughts and feelings aged, you know, 24 to, to 33. <laughs> They're <Yeah>. all there. <laughs> oh, it's funny. And I've, I've kind of used the, the term snapshot. Like it's a snapshot of who you were, but because it's such a long form narrative, snapshot might not be the best. It's like a diary here. I don't know. But yeah, I have found like the, in my, in past years, I would sort of like grimace a little bit when I think about my first book, you just, all you can see are the, the warts, you know, if you're the writer, but eventually you just go, you know what, that's who I was at age in in my twenties, you know, Mm -hmm. basically. And you, you just have to live with it on that level. And just so you know, I feel like you should feel good about this book in terms of <laughs> how it will age. Hopefully you will have a good relationship to it because you should. I think it's a it's a great representation 
and a wise, like a wise beyond its years representation of a person in that age range and with, you know, with that set of experiences. So we've talked about it being a love story. We've talked about it being a grief story. We've talked about it being a family story. We've talked about it being an Australia story and like a homesickness story, which I think is an extension of the grief story. And then it is also in some respects, a book about the natural environment and maybe the, you know, the peril that, that our natural environment is in with climate change, Mm -hmm. like water and fire. There are lots of like symbolism Mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, the natural elements and threats to the natural environment that the narrator is in and that Jude is in. Obviously the ocean is a big part of this story. So can you just talk a little bit about that part of it? Yeah, I think that, you know, as I was saying before, the specificity of the Australian landscape was so important to me. And I don't think you can talk about that without talking about the threat of climate change. And also the kind of what I feel like is a sort of psychic trauma or menace that I feel like is just so much a part of the land itself because of the history of colonialism as well. And so even though Australia is this incredibly beautiful place, it's dangerous in the way that we all know it's dangerous. And as especially my American friends love to point out, there are so many things in that landscape that can kill you. But I think that the menace and the threat is deeper than that and is does kind of go back to this history of violence that played out on the land. So I think it was really important to me to show the ways that that beauty could also contain an element of threat and that the narrator never really feels totally at ease in the natural world there. I also think, you know, when I was starting out writing this book and when I was starting out as a writer, a lot of the Australian books that I read were really stories about white men in the bush who go and kind of claim this land for themselves. There weren't a lot of stories about women kind of existing in these landscapes. And so I think that I did want to show that kind of sense of unease and that feeling of like, well, maybe we really shouldn't be here. We really shouldn't be in this landscape and in this place. So I was thinking about that. But then also, you know, as we were saying before, I was writing about Australia from this great distance during a time of really catastrophic environmental events like the bushfires of I think it was 2019 to 2020. I forget now because it happened, I think, so close to the pandemic in a way that these like two tragedies really butted up against each other. And at least for me, my my sense of time since the pandemic is like all over the place. But there were these really horrific bushfires and the sense of helplessness I felt, not that it would have been different if I was at home, but just sort of watching from here while literally, you know, parts of my home were on fire it was really confronting and and strange. And I think a lot of that found its way into the novel as well. For sure. And this uh, fictional town of Sailor's Beach is a stand-in for, I believe, Jervis Bay. Yeah, it's based on um, a beach called Himes Beach, which is in the Jarvis Bay region of New South Wales um, on the south coast. And that I'm, was a. I'm glad yeah. that you. I'm glad that you said that. I like that. I feel vindicated because I was, of course, googling. I was like, "Where is Sailor's <laughs> Beach?" I'm like, so. In, I'm like intoxicated. I was like, "I want to go there. It sounds lovely." <laughs> and I, again, like my sleuthing, 
I landed at Himes Bay, not realizing that, or yeah, Himes Beach, not Himes realizing Beach, yeah. that it was part of the Jervis Bay area. So yes. I did find Himes. Okay. I was right. I feel good about myself. <laughs> and it is beautiful, but it's also very different from the way I portray Sailor's Beach in the book. My writing about that landscape was really based on my memories of it from when I was a child. It was a place that I'd go on holidays with friends and family when I was growing up. And back then, it was a much more isolated place. Now, Himes Beach is a very popular destination for quite wealthy tourists, and it's changing, and it's not really that sheltered landscape anymore that I loved so much. So that was part of the reason for creating this fictional town. Listen, I was in Australia in 1995 for in college, and we were in Queensland, and we all, like, like it was a group of friends of uh, two friends and I on the semester abroad. And like what you did back then was like you pitched in and bought an old beater van because you had mm -hmm. to get around. So we had like a VW van and we would just drive up and down the coast and camp on the weekends in like surf towns. And we would go to Byron Bay, mm -hmm. which was a total hippie town <laughs> back then. And now it's like the Instagram. I mean, it's become this sort of like ritzy kind yeah. of bougie place. And I only see it, you know, online but i'm like that is not how it was it was very low-key and bohemian back yeah. in the day yeah i feel like there are parts of california i feel it that are very similar to to byron bay now you know one of the beautiful things about australia as we were saying before is because it is isol isolated there are still funny little towns like that that sort of haven't really made their way into I don't know, the kind of modern tourist world, which I really love. You know, they haven't totally been prey to the Instagramification of, of everything. Right, right. <laughs> but I do see that just, yeah, those a lot of those beach towns are, are changing. And, you know, obviously there's so much money to come from tourism. But it was just, yeah, it's kind of strange to see how much that Jarvis Bay area has changed and is changing from the way I remembered it when I was young. And, you know, even within the last 10 years, I feel like you could go there and there would be places where there was no cell service, which, again, I loved. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, I remember going on a – I did a solo camping, like van camping trip when I was down there. And I remember driving up the coast and going to this beach called Rainbow Beach. I think that was the name of it. Most beautiful stretch of beach you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Pristine. Beautiful completely empty to the point that it creeped me out. I was like, I'm the only person <laughs> here. <laughs> like, is there something wrong? But I mean, like that's like, Australia is huge. It's bigger, I believe, in landmass than the States. Mm -hmm. And for people who have not been there, like from a population perspective, it's obviously much smaller. And the overwhelming majority of people in Australia are coastal. So you have mm -hmm. this huge kind of landmass, but most people are living at the edges Mm -hmm. and the center of the country is essentially empty, mostly empty anyway. Yeah, it's crazy because I've spent some time like traveling around the United States and it really just blows my mind like how densely populated it is, you know, everywhere and in the middle and all these states are so specific in their own ways. They really develop traditions, art that comes from those places. I haven't spent as much time exploring Australia, which I feel kind of ashamed about. But I think when I was younger, 
you know, it was the only place that I knew. And so whenever I had the opportunity to travel, I just wanted to like leave the country, which I think a lot of young people have that urge growing up and being so isolated. You know, I didn't leave Australia for the first time until I was 18. Maybe that's not so unusual, but I think for a lot of people who've grown up, you know, in Europe or at least, you know, on the coastal states of the United States, it is kind of strange to not really get to see that much of the world until that point in your life. And the first place I ever went outside of Australia was New York, and this is where I ended up. So <laughs> it was clearly really? very formative experience. Yeah. Clearly, yeah. Well, and I, but I feel like maybe I, I always felt like Australia as a national cultural value uh, really prized international travel, maybe as a function of its geographic isolation. Like most Aus Australians that I've known have always made a point to get out and go see things. And I feel like it's sort of like, I have memories of friends being like, yeah, you know, my job gave me time to go on a long holiday. Like to a degree that it wouldn't exist in the States. They'd be like, okay, bye. Oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I feel like, is that true? Is that accurate? That maybe in Australia, people sort of value and understand that like, you know, we're living here on this, uh, big, huge piece of land down at the bottom of the, of the planet. And it's good to go out and see other things. I think that's true. I mean, you know, the joke about Australians is you could go to the most remote corner of the world and there'll be at least one there. And I really have found that to be true that I think there is a hunger for the travel experience for seeing more parts of the world. And yeah, I've, I've had friends that have ended up in really random places and being like, hey, I, I met an Australian at my hostel. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Of course you um, did. <laughs> of course you did. Yeah. I think that's been my experience. You know, in my travels, there were always Aussies. Maybe that's mm -hmm. part of it too. There's always Aussies everywhere I go. And I'm like, yeah, see, these people get it. You want to go. It's good to travel. It's a great education to travel, I think. And it's funny too, because I, the phrase that was coming to mind for me was island fever. Mm -hmm. Like you hear about this from people who live in Hawaii or something where it's like, yeah, it's great. It's beautiful, but it gets small. And mm -hmm. it's sort of funny to think that it might be a, a similar effect happening in Australia, which is notably bigger than Hawaii. <laughs> I think that's true. And, you know, it does often baffle some of my American friends of why I have been choosing to live here when I have the opportunity to live in Australia. And I think that, you know, to a lot of people here, Australia is this almost like slightly mythical place. A lot of people, a lot of my friends haven't been there before because it is so far away. But for me, it's, it's still the place that I grew up. And I feel like, I don't know, I, I had that sense of kind of wanting to see more of the world or or just have like a different experience for a little while the same reason that you know a lot of people choose to move away from whatever town or state they grew up in just to see something different well new york is a maybe everybody would benefit from spending at least a, a year or two living in new york city <laughs> it's a good education uh, in its own right and uh, yeah. a fun, uh, and a fun place to be and especially for a writer i mean that's where the epicenter of like global publishing, I suppose probably is. And, uh, or not even probably, I think it's, that's a pretty safe argument. And I sort of hope for my own purposes that you eventually either split time 
or I want to see pictures of your life in Australia. <laughs> I never have been to the Blue Mountains. I want to go. I cannot tell you. After reading this book, I spent like over an hour just on Google, just like looking at Blue Mountains photos. Is that where you were raised? Is in the Blue Mountains or? No, I was raised in Sydney, but the Blue Mountains is only about an hour away these days. They've got all these new highways that make it much faster. And it's the kind of place that I guess Sydney siders would go for weekends the way that in New York people might go to the Hudson Valley for a weekend or something like that. It's a it's a good escape to kind of a smaller town where there's plenty of, you know, beautiful nature. You can do the most amazing bushwalks and and hikes. Yeah. Um, that sounds like that's up my alley. What towns in the Blue Mountains are good? Um, I really like this town called Lura. It's small. You know, they have a really good independent bookstore, a candy store, a doll museum. Like, what else do you need? I was going to say, the doll museum might creep me out, but the candy and the books, I'm good. You know, know, what's a small town if it's not like slightly haunted? So, you know, the doll, doll museum ticks that off the list. But there's an incredible walk that you can do around these these mountains and the characters do this walk in the book called the three sisters there are these three rock formations and that's kind of it's around I think it's closer to Katoomba but it's just an incredible walk with these like amazing views and vistas all right yeah you should go you should take your family I think it's a nice place to go with the family yeah (laughs) It's on my list. I've been to Sydney, but I haven't like, you know, we didn't get out much, you know, out beyond the city limits. Mm -hmm. So I want to get back to your book and a certain aspect to the narrative structure that I think is interesting and will be of interest to listeners is the fact that you have it framed in such a way that you begin as a reader knowing the outcome. Mm-hmm. of this relationship. And let's have you read a bit from the book that you know, right from the beginning so people can understand what I'm talking about. And then we'll discuss this choice and its implications. Okay. So I'll read a little from the beginning. Today, I saw a picture of Jude with a child. Not one of the fair-haired nieces I remembered from photographs around the old house who would be grown by now, but a dark-haired little girl, three or four years old, still soft-cheeked, straight hair cropped at her chin, a short fringe that looked home-trimmed, eyes so brown they were almost black, a cupid's bow mouth stained with berries at the creases, Jude's lips. The photograph had been featured in an article about a portrait prize for capturing contemporary Australian life. The artist herself was unfamiliar to me, but it had come up when I searched Jude's name. Such a long time since I'd seen or heard from him, though sometimes, lonely and between lovers, I looked him up online. There was never much to find. Jude had remained a great resistor of technology, it seemed, in the time we'd been apart preserving his privacy and his solitude. Within a few years of the fire, he had all but disappeared. But then this. Jude and his daughter overlooking a green valley at a farm or vineyard. Mountains behind them, bluing with distance, somewhere in Tasmania. Low grey fog lingering above the hills like a memory of smoke. It was something in the way he held her, That's how I knew she was his. 
not composed and smiling the way you would be when holding someone else's child to show that everyone is having a good time. They were caught off guard, Jude with his back to the camera and the girl in his arms. She was peering over his shoulder at whoever was taking the picture. He'd turned just at the moment the shutter fell. His lips parted as if about to speak. His face had aged, skin creased and papery at the corners of his eyes and the folds of his neck, which looked sunburned and tender, his hair cut shorter now. If I'm 37, Jude would be 55. Old, perhaps, to be a first-time father. And he did look tired, a dark patch beneath each eye like a stain, a new vulnerability to his expression. It was a beautiful photograph, and I was surprised how much that hurt. The greens lush and saturated like a country fresh with rain. Colour so rich I could almost taste the earth, the water in the air. The little girl's expression, solemn and soft. The art of it, the intimacy of that gaze. Briefly, it seemed like I had stumbled across an image from another life. That what I had seen was none other than the unrealised possibility of our long-ago love. Lovely. A great beginning. And I should tell listeners, like the entire book is like this. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's beautifully rendered novel and just beautiful book line by line. And you're so great at description and metaphor and just like, I don't know, drawing these characters in the world that they inhabit uh, so vividly and so like poetically without going overboard. So kudos to you. And what I want to talk about specifically with respect to the beginning of this novel that you just read has to do with the fact that you're sort of giving away the game. We know from the beginning, okay, this relationship didn't work out. Mm-hmm. We know it's that they're not going to stay together. The two lovers are not going to stay together. We know this from like page one. Mm-hmm. And yet, I was no less riveted as I was reading. Uh, it's like, is there something wrong with me? I was like, yeah, <laughs> let me see how this thing just collapses. I guess that's part of it. <laughs> but it's also, I think, on a deeper level about the reasons why. And that is maybe more moving and interesting to you as a writer, but also to a reader than Mm -hmm. the simple fact that it didn't work out. Yeah, that is exactly what I was going for. And so I'm glad it came through that way. You know, as a reader and a writer and a human, I don't like surprises. And I often get frustrated when I feel like you know, the point of a book or the plot of a book is really hinging on some kind of sudden reveal that changes everything. I think this might go back to something that I read Raymond Carver say in one of his essays, which is, you know, one of his writing rules, which is no cheap tricks. And so I, I think I feel cheated sometimes if I feel like the writer's point is to kind of pull the rug from under me. All this is to say that I'm also really interested in how you can build suspense when you do kind of reveal the outcome of an event in a novel. And for me, the the idea that you would know that the relationship 
fails, to me, that allows a more interesting question to emerge, which is not will this relationship last or will these two people stay together, but what is the what are the reasons why they don't? What are the reasons why they come apart? And yeah, to me, I just think that is kind of a more interesting question for a novel to pose. No than doubt. The will they, won't they? Yeah. And it's like, uh, yeah. And it's like, it's more adult. I mean, there's something kind of juvenile about will they, won't they? Not that there can't be, <laughs> not that there can't be good, like, like love stories in that vein, but I feel like there's a forensic quality to the telling. Mm-hmm. It's very carefully observed. It's like deep memory work on the part of the narrator. And you're sort of along for the ride. You know, she's kind of investigating that question herself. You know, why didn't it work? Even though she's probably had lots of time <laughs> to ponder that. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's a good lesson to the writer in me. And I think for listeners who are writerly, no cheap tricks. <laughs> it's good to say the thing right at the beginning of a novel. It's good mm-hmm. to sort of start in the middle, as they say, like drop the reader in the middle of the river instead of sort of like standing on the bank and, mm-hmm. you know, saying we're eventually going to be in there. You know, it's better to just kind of jump in. And there is a propulsiveness to the story and a sense of drama that persists, even though we know uh, it's going to fail. And there's something sort of like tragic, you know, Mm -hmm. there's like this tragic quality to it that kind of moves you along and is is emotionally powerful as a reading experience. I I was hoping it would be that way because I do feel like if you know, if you know it doesn't end, then you can kind of participate in the narrator's grief about that throughout the process of reading the novel. And I think that... um, yeah, it, get, it kind of gives it a different charge. I feel, no doubt. If you know that, the, if you know that it will end, or that yeah, and yet at the same time, I hope that readers have the experience of hoping against your own knowledge that maybe they'll figure it out. And I think that you know that feels true of relationships a lot of the time as well. But again, I was interested in what happens in a relationship and and why people come apart even if there isn't any kind of major dramatic event, as you said earlier, the relationship has, of course, imbalances of power as any relationship does, but it's not, you know, problematic. It's not abusive. And yet sometimes people just still can't get together and and figure it out. And to me, in some ways, that felt much more tragic than there being kind of any larger kind of plot or circumstances that would prevent these people being together. I think it's much sadder when it's the people themselves that are stopping themselves from being together. Right. Right. Yeah. It's interesting why certain relationships work and others don't. And, you know, it's always a two-way street. There's always like reasons or responsibilities. I mean, sometimes it's an, it's an imbalanced equation. So, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. there's a one person who has more, maybe primary responsibility for why it doesn't work, but it's always ultimately a two-way street. And I think your book does a good job of delivering that. And I think what's interesting too is how sometimes relationships don't work out for reasons that are really no fault of either party. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just circumstantial. Sometimes it's issues related to timing, like the time in life that you're at. I think Mm -hmm. that's an issue here, you know, that you have the narrator who's 24 and Jude who's 42. And while they have uh, so much to love about one another, and there's so many good aspects to their relationship, it might just be 
doomed for the simple fact of this difference in age and also difference maybe in temperament, which might mm -hmm. be related in part to age, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about this when we were talking about the age gap earlier, but, you know, age is only one aspect of character. And I really love books where I feel like you can love all the characters, even though they're flawed and you can recognize those flaws. And I guess I'm thinking of books like Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping, which is a book I really love. But I kind of wanted Thirst for Salt to have no clear heroes or villains, just complicated people who sometimes end up hurting themselves because they don't have the kind of insight that, you know, they could have or they have their own hangups or limitations. And again, as I said before, you know, to me that is much more human and, and tragic than inventing a story where there are these kind of larger plot events that are preventing two people from being together. Or or like caricature. Yeah. Like it's not that there can't be like a story with a real villain who's also human. But I don't <laughs> I think that's I think that's the exception and not the rule, especially in mm -hmm. stories about intimate relationships. I think it's, you know, no cheap tricks, right? It's it's right. a cheap trick to draw you know, kind of a boogeyman character set mm -hmm. against the the hero or the heroine who's trying to make it work, but is up against, you know, this bad person. That's not usually mm -hmm. how it really is, you know? And I think this book is nothing if not human. Like I totally bought everything you were saying in this story. Like I, these people are real to me, you know, the way, in the way that fictional characters when they're done well tend to be. Mm -hmm. And I must say Jude it live, will live in my memory as sort of like a quintessential Australian coastal cool guy. You know? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. He's like <laughs> this, you know, he's kind of just this quiet, what's the kind of hat that he wears? I Googled it. I was like, I got to get, you know, what, do I need one of these? What was it? Oh, the, right. The Akubra. Was that what it, was that what you called it? <laughs> it's, a, it's like a, a rabbit felt hat. That's yeah. right. A rabbit felt. I was like, what is a rabbit felt hat? I was like, you know. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, because I was trying to get a visual and I don't think I had a visual frame of reference for that hat in my head. So, but I don't know. There's something like very quintessentially Australian about him. I think so. I think there's a kind of reticence to him that feels, you know, it's different to the kind of maybe like American cowboy character, but I think there is still like a stoicism and, and a reticence to that kind of Australian male character as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, I'm calling back to my memories of being in Australia many years ago. It's almost, almost 30 years ago. Holy shit. But I feel like there was maybe more of that, you know, like these kinds of cowboy seeming characters than I was mm -hmm. experiencing in the United States. Maybe it has to do with the more open space or, you know, I don't know what it was, but just kind of like that quiet, cool, removed maybe not super in touch with his emotions yeah <laughs> you know that sort of thing but Definitely. still you know for a guy it was like oh okay this is and they're good at surfing and they're not scared of snakes you know that kind of stuff <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that is like an australia i feel like that is an australian like national trait to be like preternaturally comfortable around animals that can kill you like sharks you know like crocodiles yeah all that stuff they loved i mean we got teased endlessly you know it's like you'll be all right it's just a brown snake you know? <laughs> <laughs> hey that was pretty good that was a pretty good australian accent <laughs> I, you know, it's there for a while but yeah i remember 
and the dingoes. We went to Fraser Island, which is now a different name, I believe. They reverted to its indigenous name, but it's mm-hmm. like this huge all sand island. Have you heard of this up in like off the coast of Queensland? But I've heard of it, but I've never been there. Yeah, I mean, just absolutely pristine. You had to rent like an SUV with like the tires deflated because there was just sand roads and these beautiful like swimming holes. And the, but the beaches, they're like you can't go in the water because there's so many sharks. Because I guess the fishing boats would feed or would dump like chum or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There were just tons of like bronze whalers and great white sharks or whatever. Oh and yeah. So you get there and they're like, yeah, you know, a girl got her leg bit off like last week. Just because she yeah. waded, she waded in up to her knees, you know. And then, of course, my friends and I were all swimming. You know, we just we were fools. We made it out okay, but we sort of like went up onto a a cliffside and looked down to sort of check. And we're like, I don't see any sharks. It's safe. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind the fact that they can swim like you know, ten miles in like five minutes or whatever. But anyway, this is a beautiful book. And before I let you go, I just want to talk briefly about your formation as an artist, because I think this is central to your style on the page, like it's musical quality to your work. You have a musical background, you have a musical father, you have a mother who I believe is a visual artist. That's right. So that's good creative DNA. And yet you, I guess you, you know, you started off in music mm-hmm. as a singer-songwriter and as a member of a band called, I believe, Devotional. Is that right? That's right. So you kind of towed those waters, but ultimately chose to pursue a career in literature mm-hmm. and to sort of forge your own path and to sort of have your own thing. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to hear you talk about that decision, but also to maybe to talk about the ways in which growing up with a musician dad might help you be musical on the page i mean mm-hmm. and also having a mother who's a visual artist might help you write beautifully in a visual sense which you do like it's pretty I, f- I feel like i can see these lines pretty directly i'm sure you can too yeah definitely i think music and visual art have been so much a part of my interior world and imagination like since i was very small both my parents you know, they made art from home. My dad recorded at home for a certain period. My mom always painted within the house. You know, the way I grew up, we didn't have like extra money for them to rent studio space or to have childcare. So I was really just immersed in their creative life from the moment I was born. So I would, you know, kind of go to sleep surrounded by my mother's paintings, these huge evocative, often quite dark oil paintings at that time. And my dad is also a really big reader and he read to me a lot as a child, you know, since basically again, since the day I was born. And because he has that performative sensibility, I think listening to him read to me when I was young really taught me that storytelling is a type of performance as well. And I think it's also partly why I think of writing and and reading as such an intimate act. So I think that I was just really steeped in this stuff. And one of the beautiful things about growing up in a creative family is that I was always encouraged to express myself and I was allowed unfettered access to all of the tools. You know, my parents, bless them, weren't particularly precious about their instruments or their materials. They would allow me to kind of like get in and get my hands in them. So I think that it was something that I kind of, just grew up doing and thinking about the world in artistic terms, I think. 
I don't have any talent as a visual artist, so that was never going to be my medium, although I did love drawing and painting when I was younger, as I think most children do. But I think ever since I was small, I had a desire to want to write things down. And, you know, the other side of this kind of creative upbringing is that there were parts of it that were also very chaotic. Like we didn't have a lot of housing stability. We moved around a lot. Again, my parents separated when I was very young. And I was also kind of surrounded by all these interesting people and part of this world of adults too. So I don't know, I think part of me just wanted to like document the things that I was witnessing and experiencing. And eventually I kind of found my way to writing. I'd always been a big reader. And when I was a teenager, I started writing more seriously. And I was also, you know, playing guitar and writing songs. I love music. It's still, you know, a big part of my life. I wish I did it more. But I think when I was kind of the same age as my narrator and having this reckoning of like, I'm out of college now, I'm not living at home, I have to try and make my way into the world. I think I felt like a lifestyle as a writer was like slightly more stable than the vision of creativity that I had known, <laughs> which is like hilarious to me now. And right. I think really shows you something about the way that I grew up, that that seemed like the sensible choice. Right. But I don't think I ever really entertained doing a career that wasn't artistic or creative in some way it just never really crossed my mind like that just wasn't that wasn't what people did in my life you know my family and their friends were, were very unconventional like no one was going to work in an office I, I was joking with another like uh, musician friend of mine about how I've always kind of had this fascination with with office jobs because it's something that my parents never did <laughs> something that I've never done I've always kind of worked in creative industries or like had you know, retail service industry jobs as a way of supporting myself. So I don't know, you know, you make so many decisions about your life when you're when you're really young and you don't know that much about the world yet. But I guess all this is to say is I wasn't really raised with a lot of practical things and considerations in mind. So the idea that if I could get my MFA, I could write and I could teach writing and then, you know, have some kind of academic life that seemed very sensible to me when I was 23 or 24. It yeah. seemed a lot more sensible than being a, a touring musician. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So I think it's important to know that that's where I was coming from when I was making those decisions. Well, I think one of the things I will take from this conversation and from your book, <laughs> speaking of music, is the sensation that I have when I'm reading somebody who's really good at writing lyrically, when there's a real strong sense of musicality in the prose and the effect that it delivers to me that, oh, this must have just come out in a rush. Mm -hmm. Like it just sort of takes you along and you feel like, oh, this person's like singing to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was just talking about this with respect to my friend, Gina Frangello. She's the same, like same kind of writer where you're just like, wow, this must have just come out in a flood. The question that I'm going to take away, based on earlier uh, conversation that we had, is whether or not it is m more common or less common for that kind of writing and that kind of effect to be delivered through a slow and arduous mm. process. Like the process that you have and that I have, I don't think I'm maybe as good of a singer, <laughs> but you know, like the, the question is, is it common? for really musical lyrical writing mm. to be rendered through that slow painstaking process? 
or is that the exception? And is the rule that actually, you know what, lyrical writers tend to write in a rush maybe in, mm-hmm. you know, they like, you know how some writers work every day, maybe lyrical writers are the writers who work like three days a week, but when they work, they really work. <laughs> That's a question I have. I wonder, cause it's so, it seems so counterintuitive that like writing that would flow like this and would have this great rhythm and melody to it almost would be born from such slow work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I guess when I was writing songs, that felt kind of slow as well. I mean, you would have, I would have brilliant days when you just wrote a song in an afternoon, but that to me was the exception when it just kind of comes out fully formed. But, you know, when you're writing music, there is so much else that you have to consider too, like the rhythm and the phrasing and how it fits with, you know, the instruments and the chords and things like that. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's a great question though. And you'll have to, I mean, you're in a position where you can ask more writers. So yeah. when you encounter <laughs> more right. lyrical writers, you're going to have to ask them. It does seem like something that should be almost like stream of consciousness. But for me, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of revision and reading things out loud and, and making adjustments. But I do think that a lot of that was helped by my background writing lyrics first and just kind of thinking about prose as an inherently musical thing. Sure. And dad reading to you as a kid, you know, yeah, that makes sense. It is good to read aloud, I think, as, as an editorial function, you know, like yeah. f- feeling and hearing how it sounds matters, even if the person on the receiving end only ever sits there in silence and reads the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it depends how you read too. I'm definitely one of those readers that like hears a voice narrating in my head, um, which, you know, probably won't surprise you that I'm also a very slow reader. And I like to read at a slow pace, which is a little tricky when I have to read so much for work. But I just find that (laughs) that's how I was just gonna say, like, my whole life is like, God, I would love to be able to slow down. I'm always like reading as fast as I can. I don't know what I'm losing. But it's just it's reality, you know. Yeah, I wish I could be I wish I could be faster, but I just kind of can't I can't seem to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always ask people uh when I'm talking with them for the show if they've got another book in the works. It's okay if you don't, but I'm wondering if you've got other projects happening or like how far along are they if at all? Yeah, I have an idea um for possibly a second novel. Again, it's about similar themes to this one. It's a lot to do with motherhood and dogs, two subjects that I think I'll probably always write about. But I'm kind of in that stage where I'm just enjoying letting it percolate in the back of my head. I have to say, I just thought the phrase, the dingo ate my baby just came into my head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's like part of my like psychic (laughs) residue. And you would have been there right at that time, right? (laughs) Yeah, probably. I don't know. But it's like, it's like a cultural catchphrase at this point. So apologies. But I had Maybe I need to uh, make some kind of reference to that uh, in the novel. (laughs) There you go. In the novel in progress. But yeah, I'm just kind of at the stage where it feels good to just have something that I think about and kind of not putting any pressure on myself to really get it on the page yet. I I think for me, so much of the work happens, you know, in between the rest of your life. And I also sort of feel like I really, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be morbid, (laughs) but I feel like putting this book out does feel like the end of a chapter of my life. And part of me just needs to live more and think more and have more experiences before I'm kind of ready to say something new. And I think that for all the, you know, 
really positive sides of putting a book out. I think that it is also often accompanied by that sense of loss. You know, you held this thing for a long time and now you have to kind of hand it over. And I'm I'm happy to do that, but I feel like I'm also kind of not ready to forge a bunch of new relationships with a whole set of new characters yet. Yeah, right. I've been hurt before. Yeah, I mean, you know, exactly. These la- this last batch <laughs> left me. They're now out in the world. Yeah. Well, listen, selfishly, I, I urge you to hurry up. I can't <laughs> wait to read whatever you write next. This is a very promising and auspicious debut. It does not read like a first work. It reads like the work of somebody who's really accomplished and has been in the trenches for a long time. So kudos congratulations and i will await a time in your life when you are at least splitting time i will be following your instagram for these australia pictures and hopefully i make it to the blue mountains one day yeah i hope you do thank you so much for this conversation i love the podcast so uh it was a special treat to be able to chat with you about thirst for salt all right everybody there we have it that was my conversation with madeline lucas her debut novel is called Thirst for Salt. It is available in North America right now from Tin House. You can find Madeline on the internet. Her website is madelinelucas.com. You can also follow her on social media. She's on Instagram and she's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Madeline underscore Lucas. One more time, the novel is called Thirst for Salt. It has to be one of the best debuts of the year. Go get your copy right now. Do yourself a favor trust me. If you would like to support this show, if you had a good time, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod for as little as $1 a month. If you would like to get some other people merchandise, go to otherppl.com, the show's official website. Get yourself a t-shirt or a sweatshirt. If you would like to sign up for my free once a week email newsletter, you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you have a moment and you're feeling generous and you would please rate and review this show, I would certainly appreciate it. Rate it and review it wherever you listen to it. If you would like to watch this podcast, if you would like to watch my conversation with Madeline Lucas, head on over to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and find the Other People YouTube channel. When you get there, hit the subscribe button. It's free. Follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. The Twitter handle is at OtherPPL. If you have feedback, if you want to tell me something, you can email the show. The address is letters at OtherPPL.com, letters at OtherPPL.com. If you would like to read my latest novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So go get that if it is of interest. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up next on the Other People podcast, I will be in conversation with Shannon McLeod. She has a new story collection out called Nature Trail Stories. It drops this week, so stay tuned. Stay tuned.